Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Mobile hunters, if you're looking to up your mobile game, head to tetherednation.com and check out all of their saddle gear. Regardless if you're new to saddle hunting or an old tree climbing veteran, Tethered will have your mobile hunting needs covered. I've been using and trusting Tethered gear since they launched and have used it in all types of hunting situations from the mountains of Pennsylvania to the plains of Kansas. It has been the constant in my hunting gear and allows me to be as mobile and as versatile as the hunt requires. My favorite pieces of gear currently is my Phantom Saddle, the Ultralight One Stick Climbing Sticks, the Predator Platform, and the Fast Pack, which is the best hunting pack for a mobile hunter in my opinion. Also makes a great scouting and trail camera hanging pack. If you're looking for gear to help up your game and be more mobile, keeping you in the hunt, then head over to tetherednation.com. Welcome to the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 339. Today, we're strolling down memory lane with a look back episode to talk trail camera strategies, buck bedding, and much more. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. This past weekend was a beaut. Finally got out, got some trail cameras out. Didn't get all of them out. Um, actually, I got about half as many out on Saturday as I wanted to get out. Finally made it up to the North Piece. Hung a couple cameras, and I found me a hammer, hammer scrape. So that kind of made everything all right. I, I put on some miles, had the intention of really kind of fixing or re- resetting one camera, if you will, uh, which was a cell camera and then hanging. My plan was to hang four more. And I was kind of going to an area that, you know, I had some cameras in the general area, but it was kind of expanding the footprint and it really didn't even get the scout. Well, not even really, I didn't get the scout, the area that I was going to at all, um, this winter or spring. So it's kind of going in blind. You guys have heard me talk about it before. I don't, I don't prefer to scout during the summer. It's just, um, you know, it's for obvious reasons, you have limited visibility. You, you can't see, you know, sun has been laid on uh, down on the ground as well. Rubs now harder to tell, you know, how old they might be if it's from this year, previous years, whatever the case is. So you're really kind of relying, or I'm at least relying on, you know, historical kind of rub data, if you will. Like, so I'm just looking at, are there old rubs in the area? <laughs> is there some, is, are there a couple pieces that are kind of pointing to this area? Are there clearly defined trails that I can see at this point? Um, are there old rubs and, and, and clusters of them? Potentially, I can't tell maybe what year they're from, but at least I know that bucks have used this area. And then, of course, you know, if I'm finding scrapes this time of year, then they're usually pretty sizable and usually pretty obvious because there's just a lot of ground cover, especially this area that I'm hunting or have been scouting. Um, there's just a ton of kind of fern kind of ground cover everywhere. Um, so, but as luck would have it, you know, I ended up only hanging about, I wanted to put out four additional cameras. I ended up getting two out and covered some miles. But there was one really good find where I found a hammer, hammer scrape um, that had a bunch of old historical kind of rubs around it. Um, and so I felt pretty good about that one. It was kind of a janky setup. There wasn't any great trees to put a camera in. Um, so hopefully that one doesn't get legs and walk away. The good news is, is it's kind of far, far back off the beaten path, if you will, from any kind of parking area. So fingers crossed. 
um, that it doesn't grow legs and walk away. I did lock it up, so hopefully it manages to uh, manages to stick around. But anyway, with that, we're going to go ahead and just kind of get started with today's uh, with today's episode. Before we do that, though, I want to make a quick mention. I mentioned it in the past couple podcasts, but our buddies over at Exodus are celebrating their eighth year anniversary. They've been in they've been in business for eighth year and uh, eight years now, and with that. They are doing a campaign specifically for you, uh, for you guys. So if you've been eyeing up any Exodus products for a while, you know, and want to treat yourself to something new, um, right now is the time to do it because they're they're uh, doing a deal that is only going to run until I believe it is June twelfth. So starting, I think this started on May nineteenth. So it's been going on for for a couple of weeks now. But you can save twenty five percent off the entire Exodus website. So. Um, with this deal, Exodus will only be offering this specific savings for 300 Exodus renders and 300 rival cameras. So if you want to get into the cell game and they haven't sold out of those yet, which I've heard, I haven't heard that they have to this point, no one's uh, texted me and let me know, um, then you'll want to jump on it right now. You can also use the promo code TFTS that'll lock in your 25% savings. Uh, and that, uh, as I'd mentioned, will last until, uh, June 12th or until supplies, uh, supplies last. So in case you need to become familiar with what Exodus has to offer, let me tell you about some of the favorite stuff that I like about them. So I use uh, pretty much exclusively uh, all their uh, SP18 solar uh, panels on every one of my cameras. So whether it's a SD card camera or a cell camera, I always pair my cameras with an SP18. That way I don't have to worry about changing batteries throughout the year. I, of course, am running the the renders. I have uh, hung a couple rivals yesterday. And the thing that I appreciate most about the Exodus products just in general is that, man, some of these cameras I've had out in the woods and I don't take them out um, in certain locations and they've been there for years and they just work. So if you're wanting to get into a quality camera right now is the, uh, is the time to do it. So the Exodus render of course, is their flagship cell camera. That's powered by <clears throat> their 4G LTE technology, super fast transmission times, makes it one of the speediest uh, cameras in the industry. Plus, it's incredibly user-friendly and dependable. This ensures that the products work flawlessly when it matters most. You can save up to $125 when purchasing the Exodus Render Security Bundle. Again, using that code TFTS at checkout. Or you can click the link in the show notes of this specific podcast episode. That link will take you automatically to the Exodus website, exodusoutdoorgear.com, and it will apply the savings at checkout for you. So with that... Have a super cool show for you guys today. We're doing a look back uh, episode. So uh, between the past couple weekends, going to the North Peace and going on vacation with the wife uh, the previous weekend over the Memorial Day uh, holiday, had a lot of time to drive. And I don't often do this, but when I have time to drive, what I like to do sometimes is go back, you know, and 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 re <clears throat> listen to some specific guests that we've had on that has kind of mentioned specific kind of things or that I really enjoyed the conversation or there was like a nugget drop that I want to go back and kind of listen to again as the season is kind of approaching and I need to be kind of thinking of these things or have these things in my mind. And so I had time to actually do that as I was driving, just kind of jotted down some notes, some of the things that I thought were interesting with some of these episodes. And so I wanted to put together a look back series. And what, what I do is I kind of as I kind of take snippets from different conversations that I thought were really interesting and kind of tee them up in a very kind of bite-sized way for you guys to, you know, not have to listen to an entire episode from six months ago um, that has a nugget of information that might be helpful. And so in this episode, uh, I'm highlighting some stuff or some parts of the conversation with Justin Hollinsworth. You know, if you know him, you know, he's a big buck killer. My buddy Jacob Emery, who had a couple uh, killer seasons, you know, and, and interesting ways that he accesses things. But specifically, we st- we kind of talk about his trail camera strategy overall because uh, he's really, especially when we start talking about early season, because that's really his favorite time of the year. It might be part of a season that we, you know, often overlook. Uh, the conversation with Casey Smith from The Element, you know, he's a big time travel hunter. So we talk about that and how, you know, your style might evolve as you travel hunt and how things might change in the building you know, analogs and analogies to help you kind of, you know, keep to your strategy, but evolve your strategy as you get to like these different kind of environments and different terrain that you might be hunting. And then Dr. Bronson Strickland, which was probably one of my favorite podcasts from the past 12 months uh, or 12 plus months. And we, you know, Dr. Bronson Strickland is from MSU Deer Lab. And then that episode, we talk a lot about buck bedding and the research that he did related to that. And so we talk about the October law movement related to the law and just movement in general for, for mature deer. And then also just betting consistency. If you haven't listened to that episode its entirety, I would go ahead and check that out. I think it's episode 293, but I have uh, a really cool snippet of that one in this episode. 
And then we have uh, our good buddy, Mr. Greg Litzinger on. Um, we had a session that we did last summer um, where we talked about efficiency and kind of how he's evolved and maybe going back to how he used to do things when he was younger. Um, and then we also talk about that kind of prime time, the target dates that Greg and I really like and that we've seen kind of year over and that we've talked to hunters from other places and they also see those dates kind of play out consistently in their areas as well. So hope you guys dig the episode. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, gang, first up, we have the discussion. I think it was episode 288 where we talked with Justin Hollinsworth. Um, and in this clip, the one thing we talked about, I guess the, the precursor to this kind of statement that he makes is that we were kind of talking about moisture um, and, you know, deer liking kind of that those drizzly kind of, or I should say mature deer, liking those drizzly kind of rainy, you know, days. Not a soaker, you know, but just those days where you have a little extra humidity in the air or a little extra moisture on the ground. Um, you know, and there was a study that w- was done at, at some point um, where, you know, deer, especially, I think it was in the South, you know, preferred that kind of really humid day for movement. Whenever the, whenever they had that, they moved a lot more freely, a lot more frequently, um, and just a little bit more broadly. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about, you know, you know, what Justin talks about here a little bit is, you know, his experience in running dogs, I think for coon hunting and how much more, um, precise they were or how much better their nose was if they could get out in the morning with a little bit of dew on the ground, a little bit of moisture on the ground, or even just after like a light misty rain or, you know, humid or just a humid day or whatever the case is. And so he talks a little bit about that, but then he also talks about how those dogs would drift tracks. Um, and then thinking about that in relationship to how deer are likely drifting our tracks when we're using, you know, entry areas for entry and exit. And that when we think we're clean, we may not be as clean in and out as we had, uh, had as we had previously thought, if we think about, you know, deer who have a better nose than a canine, um, you know, drifting, drifting our tracks. So let's go ahead and uh, hear, hear from Justin. Well, and I noticed too, like when I was running dogs, that there's a lot of times, say we're like in a drought or something like that. And I was out in the summertime dogs or whatever and when it was really when it was really dry and you know we're in a two three four week drought or something like that you know where we just haven't really got any rain i mean the dogs would struggle a little bit Mm -hmm. um and being able to consistently you know stay on that track because a good competition coon dog will drift the track they won't run right on the track they will drift they will use the wind because what they're trying to do, and my this is what I think anyways, what they're trying to do is they're trying to run the coon down. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to ultimately they love they would like to catch it on the ground. Mm-hmm. And some really good competition dogs, um, a lot of the old timers they called it, you know, having a hot nose. And and so what they would do instead of running like right, you know, and following that track exactly where the coon went. They would like drift it and cut and cut cut it off at certain points so they could run it faster and and ultimately treat the coon faster. And so, um, and I noticed like on the super dry days like that, like that just wasn't happening. Like they would have to work that track exactly where that that animal had walked. So it was a little. It was a little different. Hmm. I think a, I, I think a deer can. I think a deer can drift their track. I was, so I was just thinking of that, and it made me think of. It made me start thinking about access a little differently. Like, mm-hmm. so I guess I guess let me just ask you that. Like, knowing that, and like the time you spent running dogs, and especially when you start thinking about dogs drifting tracks, and, and maybe deer are able, or I mean, I'm sure they're able to because they smell, you know, however many times more, you know, or better than than a dog does. How do you kind of, um, I guess, let me ask it this way. How meticulous is your access knowing everything that, you know, kind of how dogs react and how they drift tracks and, you know, and, and, and taking into consideration how much moisture is in the air and things like that. What, what extent and what pains do you go through to, to have clean access and I, and I, and I guess exit as well. Uh, I, I, I work on that a lot. I mean, to me, well, I'll just say this. I just re- I just recently purchased my first farm, 
and I was really, really set on like I wanted Northeast access to the park. Um, and you know, with preferably like the bedding more towards you know the opposite end of the farm, so I could set things up um, purposely, you know, in a way to get in and out clean, you know, clean because yeah, I if it's a new farm. I would probably spend probably a little extra time, well, actually a lot more time in the winter walking it and trying to understand how to get in and out of it and just trying to get the feel of how everything lays. And um, and then I, I would come into some of those spots and say, yeah, this looks like a great spot and this is how I'll access it. And I'll have kind of a game plan of like, how I'm going to, you know, come in and maybe that's using some terrain features. Maybe there's a ditch or a creek or, 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 you know, maybe there's going to be some standing corn, come, you know, over there, whatever. And I'll try to use something to my advantage just to kind of, um, to be able to, to come in and out from a visual standpoint. Sometimes the set things up mm-hmm. because, you know, it's I unless you know the farm and you've spent some time there hunting it. Um, it, it takes a little time. I sometimes think it takes two years to learn a farm. Yeah, yeah. Because I I think there's times where it's like I, that's what I a buddy of mine asked me. He was like, "Do you think you'll kill a buck on your farm this year?" I said, "No." I said, I, I said, I'd like to, I said, that'd be ideal, but I'm like, I, I don't, I said, I don't even know how the deer really moved to that farm yet. Cause I've never set a tree, not once at a time. Right. So, um, so I guess to your point, like, it just depends, you know, it's all situational. Um, and, but I know I try to do a lot of legwork in February, March into April, of how I'm going to get in and out of, of the new farm at the areas. Here's the other part of that goes back to is like then you go into the season and um, you know sometimes it's like what you see during that time frame is not matching what you're seeing now and you got to hunt you know you got to hunt the hottest signs so right. you, you know you get, you get to throw that out the window sometimes. Next up is my buddy, Jacob Emery. Uh, Jacob's from Kentucky, and we actually have two sections from him. Um, This first one, though, what he's talking about is really his preference for the early season. You know, most people people get all geeked up, uh, you know, for that last kind of end of October leading into the beginning of November, and Jacob really kind of prefers that super early season. I guess if you will, being from Kentucky, he has a, a... a velvet opportunity and that's really his favorite time of year especially if he can find a deer that's as he kind of says doing silly stuff um they'll oftentimes kind of write you a script uh in that early part of the year that you can uh make an ambush and uh put some fuzz on the wall so we'll hear from jacob here and then we'll uh we'll move into his second uh his second section no i'd say i'm probably at about 20 percent of getting my cameras out um so i like to place a bunch of non-sales I run the the Tascos from Walmart. Mm-hmm. Uh, honest to God, like ninety nine percent of my non sailor cameras are Tascos, uh, and I will set them about this time every year. In some places I've never been before, and some places where, you know, I've set cameras in the past and had great success, just kind of take inventory, and I'll let them soak for a month and a half, two months. Go back in, pull the ones that aren't producing, and I'll have cell cameras with me. Uh, in case one is per, you know producing and, and mm-hmm. showing a, an early season deer, of course, because you know season comes in down here like September third this year. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Because you have you have a velvet opportunity in Kentucky, right? Oh yes, I live I live for early season. I mean, I I would this, people want to crucify me over this, but I would almost I think actually I would if I could hunt one week out of the year, I would rather hunt the first week of September than hunt middle November. Really? That's just me. Absolutely. Why is that? I love Deer in velvet, if you can find the right one in the right spot that's doing stupid stuff while he's still got the fuzz, they're easier to kill. Hmm. Um, that's just my opinion. 
Um, now, granted, I've only killed two velvet deer in my life, so they're a little bit harder to kill than you think. But it seems like every single year, like a day before season, man, the one I want to go kill uh, just up and vanishes or something happens and it just don't work out. But I like the early season patterns, um, just something about summertime scouting and stuff. I just I don't know. I've always taken to it. Uh, my best deer actually is a velvet buck uh, that I killed in 2011. Um, and I've yet to top him, <laughs> but, but, uh, no, my goal this year is actually to kill a buck in Kentucky and velvet. Um, and after that, you know, it's just, it's a free for all. Uh, but right now I'm just trying to find one to hunt. I don't have one in mind. Um, I don't have a deer from last year that I'm trying to target and, um, uh, pretty much hunting all the same places that I always have, just, uh, trying a few different locations for cameras and, and setups and, um, when it gets closer to time, the best scouting tool you can have is uh, your binoculars and your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as early season. All right. This next session with uh, Jacob, what we're talking about is his uh, truck camera strategy. And, you know, everyone has a little bit of a different approach. Some of it's, you know, um, environmental, you know, where you might be hunting the types of things that are around the area that you're hunting. You know, me, for example, um, I don't chase a lot of, a lot of food necessarily, um, you know, because there aren't big destination kind of food sources in most of the places where I'm hunting in most of the places I'm hunting, you know, big woods, it's mainly browse. So you're focusing on those areas where, where deer want to congregate that are either that, you know, if it's a terrain feature, that's going to pinch them in an area or whether it's, um, you know, habitat related, so to speak, you know, where there's you know, things get really brushy or thick, you know, or, you know, kind of defined areas of movement where you have, you know, just diversity of habitat kind of coming together, creating edges and stuff like that. You know, what Jacob really kind of does, and he talks about here a little bit is, is, is chasing food, you know, for him where he hunts, you know, um, a lot of times that crop rotation uh, plays a much bigger role in his truck hammer strategy than it does mine per se. So let's go ahead and hear from Jacob. Oh, uh, man. My truck cam strategy changes like from seasonal, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. Every single one of my sets right now, with the occasional community scrape, I mean, everything I'm setting right now is based off of food, ag, you know, mm -hmm. and from where they're going to be bedding to the food mm -hmm. um, versus like huge ter uh, terrain features and this and that that, you know, they'd use later on. Um, Deer around here, this is where it gets real tricky, is, you know, everybody imagines like this little point off a, a hill, it's flat, that's where the buck's going to be bedding, with the wind, you know, over his back, he's going to be watching the bottom. These deer around here in ag will bed in the middle of agricultural, whether it's corn, beans, milo, when they gets tall enough, they'll bed out in the middle of it, and there really ain't no way to kill them. Mm-hmm. And, and you can say that you can sneak out there and try to, I mean, you're going to be shooting, you know, all you can see is the top of their head half the time. Right. Uh, so it gets kind of tough to hunt. So uh, going back to hunting them early deer, finding that one deer that is using like a, a path or whatever it takes to get to the beans or the Milo or the sunflowers, uh, that's the one that I want to hunt. And, you know, between 40 different cameras that I'll have set out, you know, by late July, I'm hoping to have at least two deer that are acting silly in a silly spot. Right. Uh, now, do you running that many cameras? Do you often hunt off of, you know, most, M, you know, MRI, most recent intelligence? Like, so you pull a camera card or you have a cell camera and you're getting some intel and you're like, all right, you know, I'm getting this weather front that's coming. You know, I think that deer is killable now. I just need this wind that I'm going to go try to kill him. Or, do you take a longer kind of view approach of like learning a piece of public or a part of a piece of public and hanging cameras, soaking them for a year, and then really kind of understanding how deer are using that piece particularly over the course of a season and what deer may be in those areas during different times of the year? What's your approach to that? Yeah, it's definitely the most recent information okay. because deer patterns down here in ag country change year to year based off what mm. ag is you know planted yeah, that's a good deer, point man i didn't think i didn't think of that the, the ag rotation aspect of it absolutely yeah. and today i was actually in a wma office 
begging the guy for a layout of all the fields, like what are they planted in? And he wouldn't really let me have it, but he did show me a bunch of stuff on the map and whatnot. I was like, you just tell me where the soybeans are and I'll leave you alone. Right. <laughs> because every, everything is so late being planted down here and it's going to be fantastic. That means the beans are going to be green by the time season opens. That's a big thing. If they turn yellow, yeah, they're dead. They're dead to deer. They, they won't touch them again until it's so cold. They can barely walk. Yeah. Um, but the beans will be short and they'll be green, which means that they cannot bed out in the middle of them. Mm. They're going to have to work from somewhere to that food source. Uh, so they're planting all that stuff right now. And if my calculations are correct, this should be, this should be a great early season uh, mm. as far as the WMA that I'm hunting. All right. This next segment is with our buddy Casey Smith uh, from the element. And uh, if you know anything about these guys, uh, man, they, they travel all over uh, to hunt. And, you know, one of the things we've talked about a fair amount on this show, just in general is, you know, how, you know, especially when Tony Peterson and I get together is how travel hunting and, and hunting different places, you know, will ultimately kind of, um, improve your abilities just in general, your, your strategic kind of thinking around hunting and stuff like that. And so in this segment, what, you know, Casey and I are talking about and what he's kind of pointing out is kind of how his hunting style had evolved or changed, you know, over time when he really started kind of travel hunting more and more, it kind of forced him to kind of look at things a little bit differently and hunt a little bit differently. And then in just in net net was, is it changed his overall kind of approach to hunting. And so that's what he's talking about in this segment. So let's go ahead and check it out. Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a neat thing to talk about, man, because it really does change you. And honestly, like even change the way you traditionally did stuff where you started hunting because you learn so much when you travel. Um, of course, in the field is going to be the thing that is, uh, you know, the, the shiny thing to talk about, right? But even just like the way you prepare and the way you scout and do all that stuff as well, like changes a lot. But as far as like actual hunting goes, you know, for a long time, I was a guy, well, when I first started hunting, uh, we had a deer lease in central Texas and I was mostly a rifle hunter out of a box line over a uh, bait pile. And that's the way it's done in Texas. Bait's always been legal. I don't know if it'll ever not be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely for anybody who has never hunted a bait state as we call them, it's not money in the bank. Like you might think it would be, it's still pretty tough. Deer get real wise, just like they're coming into a food source, like acorns or, uh, persimmons or whatever, like, uh, you know, bucks, especially know what they're doing around those, those things. And, uh, Honestly, where I live, the average property size is probably like 12 acres. So there's a corn feeder at least every 20 acres. Hmm. Um, you know, it, right. it ends up not being all as cracked up. Right? But anyway, so that's how I started hunting. Uh, and then I kind of developed a love for archery hunting, but still like in permanent stands. Uh, I shot my first buck out of a semi-permanent stand. Uh, I actually filmed that deer. That actually might come out on our YouTube channel this summer that's gonna be pretty cool because that was in 2005 i think nice. i shot my first archery buck yeah and uh definitely a baby face kc shooting a bow <laughs> from the early 90s you know right. dude i don't i don't know how it happened but i no range finders of course right range finders were new technology in right 2005, that was high, that was, high for, that, was, that was bougie yeah no yeah man i didn't have a chance at one of those things it was a <laughs> high school kid hunting in my leather steel toe boots you know and yeah. uh I think I had um, some type of Walmart camo on and uh, maybe a pair of blue jeans. I don't even know. But uh, <laughs> I uh, just saw this buck come out. I was hunting kind of a, a hayfield edge, and he walked out into the pasture, and I grunt-stopped him and shot him and guessed him at 35 yards and absolutely ripped him, you know, double-lunged him just to <laughs> guess at 30. And then I was like, okay, cool. And now looking back, I'm like, dude, how on earth did you pull that off? You right, know? right. <laughs> With a bow, and I did the whole dumb thing where you like shoot your fill points all year, and you're like, "Oh, that's good," and then screw your your broadheads on and right. put them on. You know, who knows what my era did? It might have just dropped right into, it, you know, like just doing a corkscrew and it worked right. out. I don't know, <laughs> but uh. you know, humble beginnings for sure. And then starting to hunt public land, you know, there's technically rules about how you're not supposed to leave your stands too long, this and that, and those mm-hmm. things always get broken, but. I never had enough money to set up like four or five different stands. 
So I always carried the same one and I either left it in one spot or I'd leave it there for a week and then move it when I saw, see deer moving elsewhere and all that. Um, and then I finally found a really good spot. This is, uh, let me think about some dates here. This would have been the uh, fall of 2013. So about nine years ago, um, I, I had scouted a place, ended up being like a 1.7 mile distance walk uh, and got to the point where I couldn't do that with a big heavy stand. So I was like, well, how am I going to make this work? And so that's kind of where my mobile hunting kind of started. I was still using a, a steel stand and, mm-hmm. and, uh, all that, you know, but I had to figure out the steps thing and how to bring them in and all that. And, uh, and that's when I finally kind of had the thought of being mobile with hunting, but it's not like it's stuck or that's the way I started doing things all the time. It's just, I learned that you could do that. Right. And then, you know, so on and so forth, uh, you start wanting to venture out and understand, um, you know, the concept of blowing out spots or the concept of feeling pressure from other hunters or whatever it is that might be a circumstance that makes you want to move. And then you realize how advantageous it is to be able to hop around. Uh, so then Tyler and I went to, once we started hunting together, we went to using tree stands that had brackets on them, you know, like those little muddy pros or whatever they were called, um, or vantage. That's what it was. Um, and we use those things a lot. And they were super comfortable, but it was kind of loud to put up and still kind of cumbersome. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I remember Tyler and I talking back then and we're like, man, it'd be, it'd be cool to have a saddle. You know, I, I see those guys talk about this stuff. And, and Tyler, <laughs> I remember saying to him one time, he was like, man, I don't know if you can be comfortable on those things. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, he's probably right. And it looks real uncomfortable. Yeah. And then uh, about three years ago, we got a couple to try out. And they were like, you know, this isn't too bad. And now, like, yeah, I'm either saddle half the time or I'm on the ground half the time. And then that's the way I hunt. And just look back and think that at one point in time, I hunted the same stand, no matter what wind direction it was. And that tr- that stand was in the tree all year long. It's like, man, that is night and day difference. And and that's one of the big things that you learn traveling is that, like, the ability to be mobile is key. When you go to a place that you don't know much about, you're learning on the fly. Like the ability to take the knowledge you learn on the fly and convert that into moves that you make instantaneously. That's how you kill big deer when you're on the road. You can't sit there and lay up. You know, um, I don't know if you golf or or I do a little bit, not a whole lot, but you know, you can't lay up and hit the side of the water three or four times because you got to go after that deer, you know? And and, uh, that's, that ends up being the thing that translates the most to me that I've learned that helps me kill deer on the road. All right. This next sesh is again with our buddy Casey Smith from the element. And, uh, another thing that we've talked about a lot on this show, and it was cool just to kind of talk to him about it because, you know, as you guys know, if you listen to the show for a while, we love, or I love to travel hunt. You know, it's one of my favorite things to do. I go somewhere every year. Um, and I, I typically go in blind and, and hunt most of these places because they're, they're a fur piece from the house. So, you know, I can't necessarily go scout them and have everything figured out before I get there. It's a lot of figuring it out while I'm there. And one of the things that we've talked about, um, on this show, you know, again, more, most specifically, I know I've talked to, to Tony about it and I wanted to talk to KC about this as well is just over time, you start to build these kind of analogs or a database of that you've seen, you know, certain types of topography and terrain and, you know, you might be in Pennsylvania in a swamp and when you get to Kansas or Missouri or something like that, there's just something the way that the terrain lays or the the, 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 the topography kind of like lays out or way the habitat kind of flows or whatever it is. It just reminds you of somewhere that you've been before, even though it's not even remotely close to the same type of topography maybe that, that you hunted that you're kind of referencing. But there's just, you've built this kind of, ability to kind of draw these parallels over time and just through, through experience. And so that's really what Casey and I are talking about here. And it's really kind of him explaining kind of how he builds those analogies. And he talks a really kind of interesting way that where how he thinks about it is, is a filling in the blank kind of strategy and that whitetails are whitetails no matter what, you know, and you really just need to kind of fill in the blanks of a strategy, almost like a word document that has sections left blank and you have to fill those in 
And once you fill those in, that is the kind of, um, that's the thing that will kind of help you get close to a big buck, maybe in a, you know, a new state or a new piece of property. So let's go ahead and listen to Casey kind of explain it. Absolutely. Dude. It's, 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 you have such a good example or analogy there. And like the way I think of what you're saying is like, it's like a word doc document template. And then you're just filling in the blanks, Love you know, yeah. uh, with all that in there. That's, it's still what I love. Tyler and I like to talk about this a lot. Whitetail or whitetail, no matter where they are in the country, they have to do whitetail things. So you just take uh, and fill in the gaps with the things that you can put it, you know, in your favor, wherever you are in the country. And uh, that's your strategy for getting close to a big buck. Mm-hmm. Now I, I will say um, there's some things that throw me off uh, because they're still so unpredictable and that's why we love them. Right. But like I can go out to a plain state and think I have something figured out, but then all of a sudden you're on a different property where there's 17 variables that you haven't considered yet. And, all, and the deer are doing something exactly opposite of what you think they're going to do. You know? So like, there's always like, like you're saying, like a new thing for the algorithm to encounter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and learn from, um, and I'll say too, like, uh, I haven't logged enough data in the hill country like mm-hmm. what i'm imagining that you might hunt quite a bit in pennsylvania mm-hmm. you know those uh you know uh what i would call ridges and hollers i don't really know yep. you know whatever y'all call them there but yep. uh it's that's tough for me and so i've i kind of tend to shy away from hunting places like that just because i feel much more confident in other stuff all right this next segment is with our buddy, one of my favorite people to talk deer with, just because the guy knows probably more about, uh, has forgotten, maybe might be one way to say it, more about deer than I'll, I'll probably ever know. And the nice thing is, is when he talks about things, he has an interesting perspective because one, he's a doctor, he's a biologist. Um, so he looks at things from a very kind of scientific lens, but he's also a hunter, of course. And so he can kind of play both parts of what hunters, you know, want to believe or hope and what the data say when he's actually looking at studies. And that's uh, Mr. Dr. Bronson Strickland from MSU Deer Lab. Um, And in this segment, we're going to have two segments for him. I did a whole uh, episode with him that was really all about kind of dispelling the, the buck bedding myths that we want to believe and um, the second segment is about is more specifically about buck bedding consistency. But this first segment, what we're talking about is the, you know, everyone's favorite topic, the October lull, you know, and hopefully people know now by, by now that there's been enough kind of stated about it, that that's uh, really not really not true. And so what we talk about here is he kind of talks about the, the lull and, and, and just kind of general deer movement over time. Uh, especially during that early part of the year. And I think the preface to this, what I had mentioned was that, you know, it's likely, you know, the law that people are experiencing is likely due to them being in the wrong place. Um, because, you know, this time of year, that October timeframe for us Northerners or Midwesterners, it's a little different for the Southern folks. And he kind of talks to that a little bit. Um, but it's a very dynamic time of year in the woods, right? So there's changing food sources that are happening. Their, their biology or not biology, but their physiology is changing and what is driving their, their behaviors is changing a little bit. And the, um, the environment's changing because the foliage is coming off the trees. And so what once was good bedding isn't good as good, uh, as good a bedding any longer. And so there's a lot of shifting in, in, in stuff that's happening this time of year in the whitetail range. And so that's kind of what we talk about in this segment here. So let's go ahead and hear from, uh, Dr. Strickland. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Let, let, let's frame something up yeah. first is for a lot of the U.S. that that works to say, quote, October lull. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> if we were going to say that in Mississippi relative to, say, the, the, the time clock uh, from the Midwest, we, we would have to call it the November lull. Right. And Got it. Yeah. So, Clint, like like where you're at, where is the peak of the rut relative to October? Usually, I think the peak breeding date is right around, I want to say, like the 6th, if I'm not mistaken, of November. Of November? Yeah. 
fifth, sixth, of like November, that, of, yeah, that time frame, I think is the the pre peak breeding date. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so we're about a month to five to five weeks behind you. So what what we see, which again can be in direct conflict with a, a lot of hunters and a lot of very popular hunters and mm-hmm. TV programs and all that stuff, is this lull takes place. But when we look at the the data, there there is definitely a lull before the rut, but there was also a quote a lull before that. So it's not like it's not like when we end up summer and bachelor groups break up, we don't see a spike in activity, and then it dips down and we see low activity, and then of course we see another spike with the pre-rut and the rut. That's not what we see at all. We just see baseline activity that is relatively low and a huge spike up, doubling or tripling uh, daily movements when it comes to the pre-rut. And all that is correlated, you know, with scraping activities and all that sort of stuff. But it just kind of all comes together. So it's kind of weird. It's like when you say a lull, a lull relative to what? Right. Yeah. A lull relative to the rut. Well, if, yeah, of course there is. Right. But a lull relative to September. No, we, we don't see that. Right. And I think where uh, I think where a lot of people get that right is they're um, they're basing their activity kind of uh, perception, right, or understanding off of maybe trail cameras that they've placed to capture summer inventory or in inventory or early mm-hmm. fall inventory or areas that they might hunt during the earlier part of the season that might be closer to field edges and stuff like that before the pressure gets to, you know, where those are still the primary food sources before acorns start dropping and things of that nature. And so I think it's probably more of a um, consequence of people being in the wrong spot versus the deer actually lulling, so to speak. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I would call it that there is, there's a change, but, but it's probably more of a spatial shift in the where the buck is at versus overall his movement activity is less. Right. Right. I think that corresponds very well with, with what you've observed and that, and, and food is changing at that point too. So when we do see these shifts, they are typically happening before the rut and after the rut and not during the rut. Right. It's kind of like once they, once they decide this is where I'm going to be for two to three weeks during the rut, that's, typically where they stay and if they're gonna you know get up and move a couple miles away that usually happens pre or post rut Hmm. all right this next segment is again with our buddy uh mr dr bronson strickland um and what we're talking about and this i alluded to it in the uh in the previous kind of mention is buck bedding consistency early season versus the rut Conventional wisdom has always been, you know, if you've read any magazine, listen to any deer hunter, um, you know, pretty much anywhere, um, what you will always hear is that, you know, that early season time frame, just call it October, you know, for us Northerners and Midwesterners again. And that time frame is when a buck is going to bed most consistent. He's going to have his kind of bedding areas that he's going to, you know, his haunts once he makes his fall shift, you know, from his summer range to his fall range. He's going to have those consistent kind of bedding areas and they're going to be, um, you know, consistent and killable in those, you know, particular areas, uh, more so that time of year than say when you get to rut, when they're, you know, quote unquote, running all about making mistakes, day walking and things and things of that nature. And that's conventional wisdom. That's what we've all kind of lived and died by. Right. And that's, you know, that's just if you listen to anybody talk about October versus November hunting, you know, a lot of guys will say they prefer that October time frame because they can stay, they can get on a buck and he's consistent. He'll bed in certain areas and you have a better chance of killing him. And what this uh, study had shown is really that is not the case. Um, The actual opposite is true. And so with that, we'll just kind of go ahead and jump into it and let uh, Dr. Strickland uh, provide the explanation. Yeah, I I completely agree. And we have a couple hypotheses, and and that's all we can propose is here are some ecologically, some reasonable explanations. But heck, we we don't know and we never will. But so when you look at the October data, which again are far more scattered, my my hunter slash conventional wisdom would have also been initially, it's going to be much more of a pattern that time of year Mm -hmm. it is going to be a lot more like say a buck 
bachelor group where every single day they're going to this field and they're going to go bed down here. But we actually see a lot more movement and a lot more what, what appears random. But what could be going on is, number one, there's very few hunters, relatively few hunters on the landscape at that time. That's literally when when these data uh, are from the very first week of archery season. So there's little disturbance. There's also changes changes going on with mast availability. So you may have some hard mass maybe just starting to drop and a buck is working through there trying to figure out where those places are at. We also have uh, crops. So we have those summer cash crops, uh, what is left in those fields, and then we have food plots being planted. So we also have a lot of variability potentially in food on the landscape with little human pressure. Right. If we fast forward that two months, everything's changed. Uh, what, what grain or whatever was left in the ag fields, that's probably been exhausted. The agronomic foods are going to be food plots. Uh, the mass at this point may or may not have been completely exhausted by now. And the deer know that hunters are out there. The pressure is on. So he just may be in, in fewer places right now because he knows he's being hunted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the other thing that I found interesting too, is that, that, that scatter plot got tighter. But a lot of his, it, it, the other thing that flew in the face to me a little bit of conventional wisdom was that it's almost as though his core area got smaller. And you always mm-hmm. hear, you know, a buck, they start to range out during, you know, that, that time of year. I would like, it would have made more sense to me if it was, if we were looking at a buck that was say five and a half, six years old or seven years old, you know what I mean? Like a, a deer that maybe he's like, eh, you know, I, I, I've heard, you know, I don't have any proof of course. Right. But another piece of conventional wisdom is, is that as a buck gets older in, in a lot of instances, potentially, right. Again, this is all mm-hmm. hunter wisdom that they start to shrink their, they start to shrink their core area. They know where they're safe. They know where danger is. They have a, an area that they feel really safe in and they kind of know where the doe family groups are at. And they're going to kind of work those doe family groups and are just not going to expose themselves and which can make it harder to kill them. It can also make it potentially easier to kill them. And so this would have looked like to me, I would have been like, yeah, this makes sense if this is like a, six-year-old buck but like and when i'm looking at a three and a half year old i'm going man that's like a teenager or like a 21 year old like yeah. he should be out partying <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> right like, throw like, caution to the wind right yeah. right exactly and so that's the other part that really kind of um i guess surprised me was like how tight his core area was was were any of these areas you know i, I guess let me ask this question first so you have bucks that are colored. i'm assuming you have a bunch of does that are colored in this same area too right Unfortunately, we do not. Okay. I wish we did. These are bucks only. Okay. Because my, you can probably figure out where my next question was going. My next question was, is like, you know, the, this pre-rut or this uh, peak rut kind of area. It'd be, I'd be curious to know if any of these bedding areas are adjacent downwind or how close they may or may not be to where we might have doe family groups that are that are bedding, especially close to these food sources potentially. Buddy, you and me both. Uh, I, I want to know that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Because that was my first. Kinda, it, my was my, kind of my first thought was was that, and I don't think it describes or would uh, answer all like the the tightening of the core area questions and and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I, it would just be a piece of the puzzle, but it would be interesting to kind of kind of consider. But, but I mean, based on what you know about deer biology and behavior and things of that, I mean what would be your gut feeling around like, you know, looking at the landscape there, you know, would you feel like some of these areas are kind of prime locations for, you know, him bedding downwind or close to a doe bedding area? Oh, absolutely. I I have no doubt that's what's going on. I I just wish we could quantify it and and prove it. Hmm. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, like if you're looking at that figure, um, if he's down in that little, uh, the little cover spot mm-hmm. south of the big, the larger, I, I you know, I, I bet a thousand dollars. There's a, a doe social group located in that, in that wood block, right. you know, to the North. Yeah. Um, he, he's going to be in proximity of that. Right. Right. Yeah. And here's another way to think about this plant. You, you, you touched on some things that are really interesting and, um, we actually uh, were hoping to get it launched right before deer season, but we, we have put all of this together, all of these analyses together, 
in a in a document, and it's going to be uh, free of charge, free to download, print yourself, the whole deal. Um, but but we're looking at a lot of this stuff, like uh, and, and here's one I I think you might think is interesting, is that it's the way we talk about the the Bucks home range, and there there's so much so many assumptions and the way you kind of think of that. And so what happens is, is we think that the Bucks' home range is getting bigger during the rut, for example. But it's all based on scale. And here's what I mean. When, when you look at then the, the daily footprint or weekly footprint of most of these Bucks, it's about the same. But what happens during the rut is that there is a shift. And so in, in, instead of using uh, 50 acres in one day and then the very next day using the same 50 acres, is that it may move over. It may overlap a little bit with the original 50 acres, but there's only a little bit of overlap. And so he's using a new 50 acres adjacent mm -hmm. to it. And then a week later, the new. So it's like, are we talking about a daily scale of where the buck is at, a weekly scale or a seasonal scale? So when this seasonal home range gets bigger, it's just because collectively all of those weekly home ranges are not on top of each other. They're adjacent to each other. All right. This next sesh is with our good buddy. You know him, you love him, Mr. Greg, by God, Litzinger. And um, in this segment, uh, what we're talking about is just how over time he's kind of gone, you know, from earlier, I guess, in his hunting career, he went from you know, doing all of his, you know, what we'll say off season work, uh, during the course of the winter and just kind of letting the woods, uh, the deer have the woods all summer long to, you know, life happens. And, uh, just, kinda, I'm experiencing it this year, you know, life happens, you, you get married, you become a dad or whatever the case is. And, uh, that winter time isn't always as free as you would like. And so a lot of your work might fall into, you know, the summer just, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's family obligations or weather, in combination with family obligations, whatever the case is. Um, and so, you know, what he talks about is just being way more efficient whenever he used to get most of his stuff done in the, uh, uh, in the winter. And I don't think it's necessarily because the winter is, you know, it's great to be able to get out in winter scout, no doubt. Um, but I think there's a little bit of a difference whenever you're in areas like New Jersey or, you know, Michigan, cause this is something he picked up from Eber, uh, John Eberhart. He mentions that or high pressure areas in PA. Um, you know, where the deer may be just a little bit more sensitive to that intrusion that close to the hunting season. And so he talks a little bit here about being efficient and working smarter. When I was very efficient at killing many, many, it seems like a decade ago. When, when I was, <laughs> when I was just a young Greg, yeah. <laughs> when I was really like operating at my, at my peak, I'd never scouted in summertime. I, you know, John Eberhart, like when he, I read that that's what he did, like very minimal scouting in summertime because you don't want to alert the deer to what you're doing. I don't want to alert the deer to what I was doing, but also at the same time, it's like, it's hot. I don't go in the woods. Right. Like I, I blew it out. All my trees were done. Now as, as I get older and family, like I don't have two days every weekend to spend in the woods or after work. So I was doing a lot of summer scouting in the last couple of years. I'm not really seeing the deer in October that I used to see. So right. I'm kind of going back to I'll scout pretty much to now to throw out some cameras or, or try to cut a track or something. Right. But a lot of my scouting is I'm glassing bean fields. Mm -hmm. Why I still can't before they get too tall. Cause Jersey's got a lot of hybrid beans and they get like six feet, oh, you know, wow. okay. become like mid August or about, you know, five, six feet. So a lot of deer hidden. So I know what a big deer looks like this time of year. I have three that around me that if they start fill out their possible target box, but mm -hmm. I'm just glassing in a net, just driving down the road, glassing deer and, walking the edges of the bean fields like, oh, there's a track market, you know, you know. So, so you're, just, you're using easy access places when you are going out even yeah. and just trying to see like, yeah, hey. they're coming to beans. Like there's no, I mean, it's a perk of world, uh, farm country basically. So there's a lot of beans, a lot of beans, a lot of corn. Uh, right. Can't really do much about the corn, but deer this time of year aren't really spending too much time in the corn because of their antlers. So right. they spend a lot of time in the beans. Well, I can just glass the last hour light. So I'm 
almost every day. I'm glad in hour some light. ways it's probably even better than camera inventory at that yep. point. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? As far and, as just like gathering inventory. Yep. And that's just like, no, all right, boom, there's four bucks over here. And there's one area that was, I seen like three weeks ago. I was like, man, these bucks might turn in some, they're nice deer, but nothing. I'm going to waste my time. And in the spot, it's a huntable spot where they're coming out of. It's right in private public and nobody hunts there, hmm. but it's, I got spots in there. There's just nothing worth shooting. Right. To me, it's like I, I walked the edge of the, the bean field. There's one big track, but it's it's a bigger body buck. There's a group of four bucks there. And it's like, eh. So I, I'm literally just kind of just writing that spot off. I'm not even going to waste my time. Right. You know? And so it's like, all right, on to the next. I still drive by with a net so a net can see them. Right. But they're like, they're young. They're like clockwork. You know, it's like, boom, they're there almost every day. 7.15, yep. here they come. Well, like the bigger guys, you know, but... And they don't mind the car stopping. I mean, they're like 300 yards away. They don't mind the car stopping. Hmm. Any deer has been around in Jersey. If you stop, they're gone. He's like, mm, okay, I'm going back in the woods. So this next sesh is with, again, our good buddy, Mr. Greg Litzinger. And if you've listened to any of the episodes he and I have done together for the past two to three years, um, you've likely heard us talking about targeting specific dates. Um, everybody kind of knows those kind of classic rut dates to look to pinpoint, you know, if you know what your peak breeding date is, you know, um, in the earlier part of November and then again in the later part of November, uh, or December rather, whenever does cycle back in, um, then you'll kind of know, you know, the two or three, maybe four days on the front side of that when things are just going to kind of be bananas whenever they're, they're cutting does out. I use that date for whenever I go to Kansas. I know the spot that I go to, there's a specific date where you don't want to miss, doesn't mean it's not good other days, but it's just I've I've heard from I learned this from a friend who told me this, and then I witnessed it, you know, two years in a row where it's like this specific date is just bonkers. There's just deer everywhere. I think last year I saw thirty deer on that date, but that's no that's November. Everyone kind of targets those dates, right? And so over time, what Greg had learned, he had passed along to me, and then I validated it with just trail camera data, and then you know being in the woods on these dates and kind of observing it from the tree myself is just there are a handful of days in a certain part of October that is very overlooked um, that you'll usually get that mature deer in the area, at least what I've seen, the, you know, the, 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 the king, you know, the, the, the king shit of Turd Island, if you will, um, you know, mature buck of the area will make his first kind of daylight mistake in this, in this particular time frame. And, and you just need to be at the right spot to kind of take advantage of it. And we've mentioned this a couple of different times. And so we follow up and we talk a little bit about it here and just further validation that Greg has seen over the, uh, over the course of time. I would say three to five years, three to five. Yeah. Uh, one year, eh, two, but if you're, if that, if that time frame corresponds with the data you've already had, you know, years past and you can start to put, you know, I'm like, all right, well, you know, my date in October. Yeah. So it's like that date in October works wherever I've been. It's like, it's, it's just a great time to be in the woods. It doesn't matter where I'm hunting. Yeah. So, and that was from just trial and error years mm-hmm. of hunting in those days. It's like, wow, I'm seeing a lot of bucks. Why? Don't know. <laughs> you know? <It's> like, <laughs> then all of a sudden truck came and you're like, Oh, that's, there you go. Yeah. And then, so you're like, okay, th- those dates are very consistent. So, you know, I, I was at the Michigan tack. I, you know, there's some hardcore people in Michigan, man. For sure, man. Dude, ton, are, tons of people from Michigan listen to this. All, dude, shout out to everyone from Michigan, dude, man. You guys are killers. Dude, straight gangsters, man. They live and breathe hunting. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And uh, I talked to probably a handful of guys, and they correspond with my thoughts on the, the mid-October movement. They're like, mm-hmm. dude, every year I can count on it. It's like clockwork. Somewhere on that property, this is going to happen. I'm like, I know, right? And he goes, and the one, the one guy's like, I hunted those days because you told me those dates. So he starts, he goes, and I, 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 I see deer. He goes, and it's it, here, and then it's gone. There's a three or four day window, and then it disappears. And then, you know, there's a, a seven day law, so to speak. Mm-hmm. All right, gang, that is the last segment for this particular look back session. Uh, hopefully you guys dug the episode. I always, uh, I always dig putting these together. It reminds me of things that I probably should Remember, as I'm headed into the next hunting season, um, and maybe I'll, I'll try to see if I can find some time to, to dig back through the archives and maybe pull out some nuggets um, that are worth us remembering as we get ready to head uh, head into this fall. As, um, I know we're here at the beginning of June, man, but uh, uh, the, sun, the season's fast approaching. It, w- it will be here before we know it. 
All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Genesee Beer. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. I'm Will Cooper host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.